heaven to earth. Verse 22, John writes by revelation, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. Does that mean just physical light? Read on. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see there the playing of that theme. There's the physical light that lights the city without sun or moon. But it speaks of verse 27, that nothing impure will ever enter it. And we have playing, of course, in many other places throughout the Scripture, this theme of light and darkness. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, morally, we find in 1 John. So in the end, there will be a sinless world, lighted without the sun, And so at the bookends of human history stands God shedding light on His universe. And as we go back to this first day, we see in the creation of light then these themes of theology. But we also see, I think thirdly, not only this emphasis on time, not only this moral paradigm that's established by light, but we also see here creation by speech and the emphasis upon the Word of God. In verse 1, God creates the basic elements of the universe. In verse 2, we learn the basic elements exist on day 1 in a formless, chaotic state. The organizing, the beautifying of these elements as God arranges the universe are filled up beginning with verse 3. But as God initiates the process of arranging the basic elements of the universe, we do not see Him doing something. We see Him speaking. And it tells us right from the start of the Bible that God's Word is unique. His Word has living, creational powers. And what God says must be revered. So we read in verse 4 that God saw that the light was good. The text is careful not to say that God saw that the separation of light from darkness was good, but that the light itself was good. What God had made was aesthetically beautiful and morally illustrative. He had warmed the chaotic world with light and it pleased Him. Creative acts foreshadowed the coming day when the Father would send the light of the world to invade the chaotic moral darkness of fallen humanity. And God would say from heaven, What? This is good. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well He called the light out of darkness and he said, it's good. He will call the sun to this world of moral darkness and he will say, in him I am pleased. We move in verse 6 to day 2. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it and it was so. And God called the expanse sky and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. The word translated here, expanse, or the King James translates it firmament. I think expanse is probably the better translation. It's the idea of, a, of something that's stretched out, a stretched out plane of space, a vault. Uh, 
we have here a space above us in our auditorium. That's the point of the word. There's an expanse that God creates. Now, He's creating here the atmosphere. Notice that in verse 6, this expanse of space is between waters. That is, it separates waters. You see there our word separation again, separating the darkness from the light. Now, separating waters from waters with this space. The idea is that there's a body of water that is on the earth. Again, we remember that everything's described geocentrically, earth-centered description. There's a body of water on the earth, and now there's a body of water that is up above the earth, and there's space in between. God creates that space. At this point, the body of water under the expanse is on the face of the earth, which consists of material elements dissolved or suspended in water in a formless, chaotic state. But how are we to conceive the waters above the expanse? What we're probably, I think, to conceive here is an invisible, vaporized canopy of water high above the Earth's surface. This canopy was not made of clouds because there was no rain uh, at this time, according to Genesis 2.5 and 9.13. It was, would have been transparent, could have seen right through it. The effects of this canopy, I draw on the, the help of uh, Henry Morris here, a scientist who has thought carefully on this. And I draw out from his writings, it seems to me, three principles. First of all, this water above the expanse would have provided a protective function. That is, it would have filtered out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, other destructive radiations from the outer space. We don't enjoy that today. But uh, the, this canopy would have provided that protection. Secondly, it would have provided something of a greenhouse effect. You can imagine it would have transmitted incoming solar radiation, warming the entire Earth to a uniform temperature. The fluctuation of temperature with the nighttime would be minimal, but adequate to produce a significant degree of nightly condensation, humidifying the Earth, and providing for the lush vegetation that would come later. But there was no wind. There was no rain. There was no turbulent atmosphere. And so what we had on Earth at this time is a warm Humid temperatures allowing for a very lush climate or what we might call a greenhouse. You'll walk into a greenhouse in the middle of winter and it's protected by the glass above and it's warm in there and it's humid and things are growing and flourishing even though there's snow all around possibly depending on where you're living. But the emphasis here, is it the water? That's very intriguing to us and very important part of the creation here. But really the emphasis in day two is what? This expanse, space, God is working on space in the beginning time. He's dealt with that on day one. God created the heavens, and now on day two, he's dealing with the heavens, and he's dealing with space. Uh, I missed the point here. Let me just mention this, throw this in. I said there were three functions. The other was a destructive function to this canopy above. Uh, and that's, I think, what came down when the flood of Genesis 6 came upon the earth. But at any rate, God is emphasizing really here the atmosphere which is making possible the coming biosphere. But noticeably missing from the text is the phrase, and God saw that the sky was good. It was good. God made it. But again, the text is emphasizing something. It's steering our attention away from the space. Probably a purposeful de-emphasis in Moses' day as so many turned to the skies for worship. So on day one, time. On day two, space. On day three, then, God will deal with mass, and the text moves at this point to a decidedly geocentric focus. God begins to work over the earth itself on day three, beginning in verse nine. 
And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And he called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. There's actually two acts of creation on day three. We'll divide it into two. And we find in verses 9 and 10 the first act. In verse 9, the waters under the sky, that is the waters below the expanse or the atmosphere, the waters on the surface of the face of the earth are separated, are gathered into one place. Morris writes, tremendous chemical reactions got underway as dissolved elements precipitated and combined with others to form the vast complex of minerals and rocks making up the solid earth, its crust and mantle and core. Surfaces of solid earth appeared above the waters and an intricate network of channels and reservoirs opened up in the crust to receive the waters retreating off the rising continents. Gathered to one place, I don't know if that means there was just one place of water and one place of earth, or maybe it just refers to all of the oceans as one interrelated system. But at any rate, verse 10, interestingly, parallels verse 5. Read verse 5. And notice down in verse 10, the parallel between the two. God calls the dry ground land, and He gathers the waters, and the gathered waters He called seas, and God saw that it was good. So again, we see God separating the elements of creation with purpose and design. Land is separated from water, and now God turns His attention to the land for the second creative act on day three, beginning verse 11. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation. Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Get the picture of the beauty here. The sea being created and the land being there and naked. But God speaks and then there's vegetation, there's trees and there's plants. Now it's... Um, vegetation here that King James translates it grass because there's uh, two ways to take it. It might be three categories, grass, trees, and plants. Or grass might be, as the NIV takes it, more of a general term of vegetation subdivided by trees and plants. At, at, at any rate, it's obvious here that he's, that he's decorating the earth with uh, uh, the flora. Now, what's important here, though, is that word seed. You see the emphasis on seed? In verses 11 through 13, 11 and 12, you see there's seed-bearing plants and trees that bear fruit with seed in it. That is, plants have external seeds and trees have seeds inside the fruit. As Hamilton notes, God creates, but He builds into His creation the means of self-perpetuation. What so many today see as evolution is God's way of creating with self-perpetuation. The Creator programs seeds with a complex genetic code that assures plants and trees will produce after their kind. What does the word kind mean? We don't know exactly, but scientists confirm that there's a stable genetic code that simply does not allow a natural evolution of new kinds. You plant a garden, you go, you got just a little space to plant this garden, and you go and get a package of carrots, and you put it down, you're going to be a bit nonplussed if a whole row of pear trees grows up where you thought there were going to be carrots. That doesn't happen, does it? They gather carrot seeds from carrots, and they put carrots on the package, and unless they've misprinted it, you're going to get carrots. 
That's just the way that it is. There's this genetic code that's designed into everything that it will reproduce after its kind. Now we notice here that fruit trees are created on day three, meaning that there's no way that Genesis can be made to fit the evolutionary model. Evolutionists are united in teaching that marine animals, both vertebrate and invertebrate, evolved for millions of years before the evolution of fruit trees. And any plant which requires pollination must come long after the evolution of insects. So the creative account's all messed up, or evolution's all messed up. We have to make the choice. We can't make the two fit. The problem, again, is that fruit trees are created here on day three. And there is no life in the sea at all. And not until day five are there any insects on the earth, possibly day six. Now that's no problem if the days in view are literal days. Can plants exist without insects for two days? Sure. Plants in our house can exist for a week without water. <laughs> they can make it without insects for a couple days. Can they make it without insects for billions of years? No. It's impossible. But if each day represents millions or billions of years, you've got a problem with the Genesis account. But it's interesting that many Christians argue that the days in Genesis 1 are long days, but I've never read one of those people trying to say that the evolutionary model needs to be corrected to reflect the days in Genesis. In other words, if you're going to really be consistent with this, you need to go to the evolutionary model and say that marine life came after plant life. You've got to say that insects came after plants. You've got to say that plants came before the sun. Obviously, you can't do that, and no one tries. But if we're going to be consistent and really claim to be honoring the text of Scripture, then we should be trying to rewrite the evolutionist theory. But that's not the point, and that's not why people take uh, generally these days to be longer days. Uh, if we ignore the inconsistencies, they at least we're at least in friendly company with the evolutionists who ignore many inconsistencies in their model. But there's no consistency to the biblical text with evolution. It just can't be made to work. Well, irrespective of the evolutionary model, God created fruit trees and plants and the fertile land upon which they grew on day three. That's what he says he was there. He's written to us and he knows. To the stark black and white of light and darkness are now added the colors of blue and green and brown. Did you hear it this morning in Job 38 and the angels sang? Did you just hear them singing as the colors begin to be made, as God speaks and these incredible events take place in this creative week? And as verse 12 says, along to the singing of the angels, and God saw that it was good. Now think about this. Before we transition to verse 4, how do people create something? You get a potter who's got a lump of clay. He usually just gets the lump, kind of, and plops it down there, right? And then begins to work that lump of clay. Um, as a writer, I know I write a rough draft. Every sermon, there's a rough draft, and it's real rough. But I go back over that rough draft, and I try to hone it and make it and beautify it and make it more specific and more usable. Uh, Someone who does a painting, let's say a portrait painting, they tell me, I don't know a thing about it, but they tell me that the most important part of the portrait is really the background, because that's what's going to highlight the foreground and highlight the portrait. And that is what we see here in God. Actually, we see God in us as we work that way. 
We kind of start out with the lump and then we make it more specific. And that's exactly what God does. On days 1, 2, and 3, he takes the basic elements of verse 1, time, space, mass, continuum, and he begins to hone them. Time, he creates light and dark. Uh, Space, he creates expanse. But it's just this unfilled expanse. There's nothing out there, nothing flying. He creates on the third day the, the the idea of mass or the earth. And we see it in two creative acts, so it's emphasized, but there's the water and there's the land. Now, in verses or days 4 through 6, we have a mirror image of days 1 through 3. God's going to go back. He's got the lumps now. He's kind of gone through it once, and He's expanded it and beautified it. But now He's going to go back and fill up those three categories one more time. We begin, first of all, with day 4, which is going to parallel which day? Day 1. Day 5 will parallel day 2, and day 6 will parallel day 3. And it's so interesting because day 3 and day 6 both have two creative acts. It's a perfect mirror. On day 4, paralleling day 1, we read verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Now do you see it? There's time. Without doubt, there's time seasons and days and years, and let the lights in the expanse, verse 15, let the lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Incredible work of creation. God fills in the details by creating luminaries. Now, of course, that's in the expanse. Of course, it's in the space. This is a time-space mass continuum. We don't have... It's a continuum. They hang together. But the emphasis, again, here is upon the seasons, to mark seasons and days and years. Now, the evolutionists point to the billions of light years between us and the stars that God created as proof that the universe is very, very old. Let's say, listen, we know that that star is 40 billion light years away. If it was created, say, several thousand years ago, the light wouldn't have reached us yet. We wouldn't see it. It's a very common uh, proof for evolution, or it's used to prove evolution. But how do we answer that? First of all, the speed of light is a conjectural issue to say that. They really don't know how fast light is. But beyond that, there's mounting scientific evidence that the speed of light is slowing considerably. Is it possible that light, when God created, was virtually timeless? That it moves so fast that it reached the earth from billions of light years away immediately? It's, it's possible. But the other thing I think that is just as easily as possible and very, very maybe probable is that God just put the light on the earth. He can do that. He's creating the whole thing. He's not going to have a problem with that. If God can create the sun, he doesn't have a real problem with getting light from the sun to the earth in a short period of time. He probably create he's already created the light rays in day 1 and now he just makes a source for the light rays for our earth in the sun. You find, we we see that phrase the expanse of the heavens uh, found here on this day. That is not we're not to understand that as the expanse that we saw uh, previously. In other words, the sun and the stars are not in between the two waters, obviously, but if that upper canopy of water is invisible as vaporized water, 
you're seeing through it, and so it's still up in space, but not the specific space of our atmosphere. That's, that's not what the text is saying. Some have tried to show that Moses didn't know what he was talking about, thinking that the stars were almost touchable. That's not the case at all. But why did God make these light bearers? We need to answer that. He makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. Verse 14 gives reason number one. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. Here's reason one, to separate the day from the night. Now that's already been done in day one, but again he goes back and retools it and makes light holders. Second reason, the second part of verse 14, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. So these, these heavenly bodies are markers of time. And then in verse 15, a third reason is to let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And then verse 16, God makes the two lights. We know that as the sun and the moon. But notice that last phrase of verse 16, he also made the stars. Such an anticlimactic phrase screams for attention particularly in a setting where pagans worship the heavenly bodies. The vastness of our universe, the vastness of the stars, is absolutely incomprehensible to us. What does billions of light years away mean? Nothing. No, we can't even begin to conceive of the distance of the stars. And what does it mean that some of those stars are hundreds and hundreds and times over larger than our Earth? We don't know what that means. But in those skies, innumerable numbers of stars, and all it says is, and he made the stars. That's the greatness of our God. And certainly the fact that the text is geocentric. But he just makes the stars. Moses throws in there. Pagan cosmogonies include the setting of the sun and the moon in their courses, but they do not talk about their creation. Because these celestial bodies were gods to the pagans. And so as one commentator writes, the utter creatureliness of the heavenly bodies has never before been expressed in such revolutionary terms as we find here. Von Rad says that Moses' attitude toward the heavenly luminaries is prosaic and degrading. Prosaic, it's just matter of fact, dull and degrading as others would read this text. God clearly creates the sun and moon not to rule and to be served, but to serve purposes of the creator. So verse 18 again, we find that phrase at the end of verse 18, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Day 5, verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the waters teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. In mirror image, we see in day five a parallel again to day two. Remember day two. Space is created by the separation of the waters from the waters. Now God deals with those waters, and he deals with the space. Birds fly across the space, and life is now teeming in the waters. Animal life created in the hydrosphere. The word team, or the King James, uh, I think, misses the point actually here to bring forth. It's not that the waters bring forth, that they evolve something. But the word, the Hebrew word translated here should be team or swarm. In other words, the waters, by God's command, swarm with creatures. Again, time, time just doesn't permit. We, we could just sit on this for weeks. 
to consider all of the amazing creatures that God's put in the drink. Have you ever gone to the science museum or something and seen all of these incredibly amazing, intricate creatures? The weirdest looking stuff you've ever seen down in those deep parts of the ocean. And so many of them, with a word, they're there. He speaks and they're there. The waters are teeming and the angels are singing. And in the sky, birds fly. Once again, the evolutionary model obviously fails because we don't have marine organisms uh, preceding plants and birds, but we have the marine life developing with the birds. Not only that, but we find in verse 21 that God created the great sea creatures, not the little one-celled blob that's kind of going to ooze up on top of the earth sooner or later, but he goes right from the start and he creates the great sea monsters. King James translates it whale. It's really a broader term than just whale, and I think it very well could include dinosaurs. Uh, monsters is the way it's translated often in some texts. We don't see here these electrical discharges creating some protoplasmic blob. What we see is God choosing to create. And He fills the sea with these giant creatures. And our minds spin to think of the varieties of the sea dwellers and birds. And it's just the Word of God. In verse 21, again, he sees that it is good. The end of verse 21. In verse 22, then, we see that God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. God blesses them. And then, having blessed them, issues a command. We learn something about our Creator again, right there. God blesses, and then He commands. In other words, God's command is an outflow of His blessing or His curse. What does God want of you that you don't like? What are the commands that God gives that you find difficult and troubling? What we learn of our Creator is that His commands are not meant to beat us on the head or to make life difficult, but they're part of His blessing. When we obey what He says, it's part of enjoying the blessing that He gives to us. And that scene and will be seen with, with the creation of male and female later, but it's seen here as well with the birds and the animals of the sea, creatures of the sea. God blesses and says, multiply. Procreate. Fill the earth. We have here a beautiful universe. God looking at it from His moral perspective, from His omnipotent perspective, and saying, it's good. It's the artist that stands back from the canvas and says, I got it right. This is good. Did He ever get it right? Incredible what He has done. After day five, the earth is set now for the final day of creation. It's been brought up out of the waters. It's been given plant life. In the sea now are animals. In the sky are birds. And it leaves us with one last stage, the final stage and the focus of all of creation, and that's to put people and animals on the earth. And we'll look at that at a later time. But the earth has been created and dressed. It remains now to fill it up. Oh, we look at these ideas, and I, I just I really struggle with the idea of time here, because I don't want to hold you long, but when we think, how can we not contemplate the immensity of our God? Billions of light years away, 
are stars that we can see. Who knows what's beyond? Who knows where it ends? Who knows what's really out there? But with a word, it's there. God creates it. And we see the complexity of our God. All that is created with this intricate system of information, all interrelating. We think of just the, the problems of evolution. I don't want to get into that at all. But you just think of simple things like how does blood clotting evolve? And everybody die before it ever clotted. Just, the, just the, the, the immensity of God, but the complexity of His creation. It boggles our mind. And we see through all of it the Word. God's Word speaking and bringing it into being. I thought as I came in today, what a beautiful scene, wasn't it? Those trees against the blue sky. Just thought, what a great God. What a great God. And what I've sought to explain is what God's Word means in these days. I appreciate your patience. This is a long text. But I've just sought to explain it because I think in the end that's what really answers the doubts and the questions about our God and about how the world came. To just look at what He's saying and allow this, the Word of God to sanctify. I don't believe reading and arguing against the evolutionists is really going to be the key in the end. But I do realize particularly for many of our young people who are in a public school setting, I do realize that the world sees these words and scoffs and belittles those who accept such a mythical account of our origins against the preponderance of scientific evidence. But please understand, Christian, that those who believe in myth are not those who take Genesis 1 literally, but those who don't. Evolution is a myth. Molecular biologist Michael Denton writes, neither of the two fundamental axioms of Darwin's macroevolutionary theory. Number one, the evolutionary con continuity of nature linking all life forms to a continuum leading back to a primal origin. Or number two, the adaptive design of life resulting from blind random processes have been validated by one single empirical discovery or scientific advance since 1859 when Darwin That's a mouthful. Basically saying there's two basic elements neither have ever been shown to prove proven true. He concludes that science itself has, must discredit evolution and discard it. Mathematics professor Wolfgang Smith calls evolution in his terms a metaphysical myth totally bereft of scientific sanction. Colin Patterson, senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, confessed that after more than 20 years of research, he gave up. He said, there was not one thing that I knew about evolution after 20 years in my seed of higher learning. It's quite a shock, he writes, to learn that one can be misled for so long. And so he says, I started asking other scientists to tell me one thing that they knew about evolution. He asked biologists at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and he said that they were speechless. He says, I tried again the question on the geology staff at the Field Museum of Natural History, and the only answer I got was silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar in the, at the University of Chicago, a very prestigious body of evolutionists, and all I got was silence for a long time. And eventually one person said, I do know one thing. It ought not be taught in high school. Or if you ask me how the world got here, I at least have an answer. The theory of evolution is doomed by complexity and intellectual design, which is becoming more and more apparent with scientific advancements that were unanticipated by Darwin. Leading evolutionist Richard Dawkins of Oxford University defines biology in his book The Blind Watchmaker as this, 
the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. See what he's saying? It doesn't have a purpose. There's no design. It just happened, but it all appears like it does. Indeed, right, Dave Hunt, one cell, the smallest living unit, could have 100,000 molecules and 10,000 intricately interrelated chemical reactions going on at the same time. One cell. Cells don't arise by chance. Dawkins admits that every cell, this atheist, admits that every cell contains in its nucleus a digitally coded database larger than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica put together. I don't believe that. I believe that we think it's 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica because that's all the further we can see. It's probably more. And there are trillions of cells in the human body working together with incredibly complex, delicately balanced interrelatedness. As Michael Bean in his book Darwin's Black Box documents the incomprehensible complexity of life at its most basic chemical cellular level, a complexity that Darwin could have never imagined, he concludes that evolution should be banished. He offers a number of biochemical examples which prove, in his words, the irreducibly complex, he, proves that, he proves that they're irreducibly complex. And he says evolution cannot explain the origin of the complex biochemical structure that undergird life, and it doesn't even try. It tries by adding zeros at the end of possibility. That's all it can do. The chances of this developing is one to the 100th power or whatever, but all it can do is keep adding zeros as it keeps looking deeper and learning more and finding that it's more complex than we ever figured. And everywhere we go, there's this design and there's this intelligence and there's this information that is packed into every cell. No, it's the evolutionists who demand that we see in the vastness of the universe and in the complexity of a single cell evidence that there's no designer and that our universe is the result of random accidents, they're the ones who are asking us to embrace a myth. Please understand, evolution is not based on science. It is based upon philosophy, a philosophy which rejects the concept of a creator God. One of my favorite books, uh, The Mythology of Science, Rush Dooney writes a myth. Now listen to this carefully, because he hits the nail on the head, and I can't say it any better, so I quote it. A myth is the attempt of a culture to overcome history, to negate the forces and ravages of time, and to make the universe amenable and subject to man. The myth reveals a hatred of history. History shows, and I hear in the background as he says history, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. History shows movement in terms of forces beyond man and in judgment over man. History rides heavily over man, is inescapably ethical, shows a continuing conflict between good and evil, and clearly shows man to be the actor, not the playwright and director. And this man hates. To fill a role he never wrote, to enter on a stage at a time not of his choosing, this man resents. The purpose man then sets for himself in this it is in his myth is to end history. To make man the absolute governor by decreeing an end to the movement that is history. This myth, this scientifically bankrupt myth, this purposely designed attempt to redefine reality is evolution. And it is a philosophy which defines not only our scientific establishment, but all of our social establishments as well. So I say, Christian, embrace the truth and don't let it go. 
Young people, those of you that are in science classes where your teacher teaches evolution, don't be afraid. They're the ones that are believing in a myth. They're the ones that believe in magic. Mom and Dad, I would encourage you, teach creation. God starts off his lecture there. It'd probably be good for us to start our lecture there and to keep it there, to talk about it, to describe it, to see it not as a simply, uh, simply a tree, but as a tree that God made. To see it as a universe not to be worshipped, but a universe that serves the purposes of the all-powerful, all-knowing Creator God. I hope that my children learn to see in all around them the hand of the Almighty God. They're being taught at every corner in this culture to see nothing but the God chance. We need to rework that. We need to work through that as we teach and as we train, as we instruct. And that really boils down to most of all, not that you know a lot of scientific facts. What it boils down to is that you know this creator. You know him personally. And you worship him as the master of inner space, not only the creator of outer space. That's what matters. So I think we need to go from this place with joy. Joy that our God did all of this. And joy that we can be at peace through Christ with the creator and sustainer of the universe, who not only called light out of darkness, but who sent the Son of Light to this world of darkness to provide salvation for our dark souls. Father, we bow before you, and it causes us, God, almost to tremble when we think that you have bid us talk to you, when we consider the power of your words, the limitless nature of your wisdom. Oh God, how ugly our sin looks, how weak our frame. Dear God, we just bow before you and we praise you. We exalt in your majesty, dominion, and power. May our souls be still and know that you are the creator. God, may we have the assurance of faith as well, that we do not embrace a myth. Though the creation scientists may be generations behind time, money-wise, behind those who teach evolution, may we remember that we see the incredible design with which you created this universe, that we're no one's fool, but we are your creatures. God, as we develop more scientifically, are more able to prove that you did in fact create, we see so many Christians turning the other way and embracing what evolution has taught on philosophical grounds. Dear God, I, I, I would not suspect, but I pray for anyone here that may be battling with these issues, they would sense the majesty and the power of your great hand, but that they would also listen to this quiet whisper of the Spirit of God, that what your word says is so. And I pray, God, that where we allow false philosophies and false theories to impact the way we look at life and change us in light of your word, may we worship the creator and sustainer of all things. Christ, I pray.